0: A federal district court in Texas issued a preliminary injunction against HB2. The district court judge, Lee Yackel, said, there's no indication that this law will do anything to protect women's health. Judge Yackel said, there's no need for the doctor to have admitting privileges to the local hospital. In the unlikely event that a woman was having complications, she'd be taken to the emergency room to the hospital, and the doctors there would provide treatment. Judge Ackles said there's no need for surgical-level facilities, no surgical procedures being performed, no need for hallways big enough for two gurneys. Gurneys weren't used. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit reversed. The Fifth Circuit said that it should be for the Texas legislature, not for the judiciary to decide if the benefits in protecting women's health justify the restrictions on the access to abortion. On Monday, June 27th, in a five three decision, the Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeals and declared the Texas law unconstitutional. Here, Justice Breyer wrote the opinion for the court, joined by Justices Kennedy, Ginsburg, Sonora, and Kagan. Justice Alito wrote a vehement dissent, joined by Chief Justice Roberts. Justice Thomas wrote a separate dissent, urging the immediate overruling of Roe v. Wade. I mentioned to you a moment ago that Anthony Kennedy came on the Supreme Court in February 1988. From then until Monday, June 27, 2016, only once had Justice Kennedy ever voted to strike down a restriction on abortion. That was in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, was the majority striking down a part of a Pennsylvania law that said before a married woman gave an abortion, Notice had to be given to her husband. Had Justice Kennedy voted here with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas and Alito, the court would have split four to four. The Fifth Circuit would have affirmed by an evenly divided court. The Texas law would have gone into effect. Instead, the Texas law was struck down. Instead, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out in a short concurring opinion, this means that all of these recently adopted targeted restriction of abortion vital laws are unconstitutional. In fact, a number of lower courts have struck down state laws across the country since the Supreme Court's decision at the end of last June. I think these two cases, Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin, Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt, show how what the Supreme Court decides affects all of us, often the most intimate, the most important aspects of our lives. And that way they again show the pivotal role of Anthony Kennedy on the current court. My third theme about the current court is how much race is a central issue in cases pending before the Supreme Court. In looking at the docket for this term, a stunning number of the cases involve racial issues. This is true across the various doctrines constitutional law and criminal law that the court takes up. Let me give you a few examples. One case that was already decided is Pina Rodriguez versus Colorado. Miguel Pina Rodriguez was convicted in Colorado trial court of sexually assaulting two teenage girls. After the trial was over, after the jury was dismissed, Pina Rodriguez's lawyer got affidavits from two people who had served on the jury. Both of these jurors said that another juror had made racist statements during jury deliberations. This other juror apparently said that Pina Rodriguez was likely guilty, and I'll quote, because he's Mexican and Mexicans take what they want when it comes to women. This other juror apparently said that a key alibi witness was not to believe because he was, quote, illegal. The witness testified that he was lawfully in the United States. Armed with these affidavits, Pina Rodriguez's lawyer asked the trial judge to hold a hearing. The trial judge said he couldn't. Under Colorado rules, and the same is true under the federal rules, a jury verdict cannot be impeached based on what goes on in deliberations. In fact, a judge can't question what went on during jury deliberations. The Colorado Trial Court reluctantly denied the request for a hearing. The Colorado Supreme Court affirmed. But the United States Supreme Court, in a 5 to 3 decision, reversed. Justice Kennedy wrote, joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan. In very powerful language, Justice Kennedy said one of the key goals of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was to eliminate the taint of race in the criminal justice system. He said, when racism is expressed during jury deliberations, that cannot be ignored. The judge was obligated to hold a hearing. As I said, this changes the law in many states, changes the law at the federal level. It raises many questions. After the judge holds the hearing, then what? Is there supposed to be a new trial? Is this just about the expression of racism? What if there's the expression of anti-Semitism, or sexism, or homophobia in jury deliberations? But I do think this case is significant for the court recognizing the problem of racism in the criminal justice system and the need to eliminate its taint. The most important free speech case on the docket this term also involves the issue of race. The case is Lee versus Tam, has not yet been decided. Simon Tan is the head of a rock group out of Portland, Oregon. The members of the rock group are all Asian-American, and they call themselves the Slants. Slants is a derogatory term sometimes directed at Asians. They said they intentionally chose this as the name of their group because they wanted to appropriate this term back to the Asian community. They point to how the word queer used to be derogatory for gays and lesbians, and then was embraced by, appropriated back by, the gay and lesbian community. They sought to register the trademark of the name of their band. But an officer in the Patent and Trademark Office refused. The officer said, under the federal statute governing trademarks, the Lanham Act There can't be registration of a trademark that's disparaging to a person or to people. The Patent and Trademark Office on Appeal agreed. But the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit ruled in favor of Simon Tam and the Rock Group that he leads. The Federal Circuit said, this is a restriction of freedom of speech. If they want to call themselves this, they're freedom of expression should give them the right to do so. The Supreme Court held oral arguments a few months ago. It's always dangerous to predict what the Supreme Court is going to do by reading the tea leaves of what occurred to oral arguments. I also long ago learned that he who lives by the crystal ball has to learn to eat ground glass. <laughs> but I'll give you a prediction. I think the Supreme Court is going to agree with the Federal Court of Appeals and declare this law to be unconstitutional. It's the oral argument, the justices were very sympathetic to the desire of Congress to try to eliminate racist speech, epithets, disparaging terms from the vocabulary. On the other hand, as one justice said at all argument, what if Congress were to pass a law that said no book, no song can be copyrighted if it used epithets or racially disparaging terms? Wouldn't that clearly be Unconstitutional? How is this any different? One more example of the central role of race on this term's docket is a case that was decided just, let's see, today is Tuesday, so just yesterday. Um, And this was a case, McCrory versus Harris out of North Carolina. What's involved here is that North Carolina used race in drawing two election districts. And the question is, was race the predominant factor in drawing the election districts? Or was political party the predominant factor in drawing the election districts? The Supreme Court has said that it's impermissible for the government to use race as the predominant factor in drawing election districts, unless the government can show there's some compelling need and no other way to achieve it. On the other hand, the government can use political party in drawing election districts. The government can engage in partisan gerrymandering, drawing election districts to maximize safe seats for the incumbent political party. The North Carolina legislature said, we were just drawing the districts based on political party, whereas the challenger said it was on the basis of race. Yesterday, in a five to three decision, the Supreme Court found that it was on the basis of race. Justice Kagan wrote for the court. Interestingly, her opinion was joined by Justice Thomas as well as Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Think about that as a majority. Kagan, Thomas, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. You don't see that every day. (laughs) Justice Kagan said it doesn't matter whether it was political party being used as the proxy for race. When race is the predominant factor, this is unconstitutional. I think this is going to create a very powerful tool to challenge gerrymandering that works to the disadvantage of racial minorities, especially in the South. No longer can the government say, we weren't really looking at race. We were focusing on political party. If the effect is to discriminate against racial minorities, then the Constitution applies. This is a very significant case with regard to voting rights. My fourth theme can also be simply stated, Justice Neil Gorsuch. I think the most important development since we spoke together last year was the nomination and confirmation of Neil Gorsuch for the Supreme Court. What's occurred over the last year is unprecedented in American history. What occurred with regard to the nomination of Merrick Garland is unprecedented in American history. Prior to 2016, 24 times in American history, there had been a vacancy during the last year of President's term. In 21 of 24, the Senate confirmed the nomination. In three, the Senate denied confirmation. But never before had the Senate said, no hearings, no vote on a nomination for the Supreme Court. What happened with regard to the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch was unprecedented in American history. Never before had there been a filibuster of a Supreme Court nomination. There were 48 votes against Clarence Thomas. There were 42 votes against Samuel Alito. But the Democrats didn't filibuster then. The Democrats did filibuster Judge Gorsuch. Senate Republicans changed the Senate rules to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. Neil Gorsuch was then confirmed as Supreme Court nominee. I think there's many reasons why the Democrats chose to filibuster. Some is they regard this as a stolen seat on the Supreme Court. Some of it is they recognize how long Neil Gorsuch is likely to be a justice on the Supreme Court. Neil Gorsuch is 49 years old. If he remains on the Supreme Court until he's 90, the age which Justice John Paul Stevens retired, he will be a justice for the next 41 years. Or as I said to my students, he'll be a justice into the year 2058. And they can think about a large percentage of their lives and their careers, they'll be a Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. But most of all, I think the filibuster was a reflection of Neil Gorsuch is going to be a very conservative Supreme Court justice. I had the chance to read a couple of hundred of his opinions as a judge on the 10th Circuit. I read his law review articles. I read his book on euthanasia. I think he's even going to be more conservative than Justice Scalia. We tend to forget that there were some areas where Justice Scalia voted with the more liberal wing of the court. Justice Scalia was often a pro-speech justice. Think of the two Supreme Court cases that held that flag burning is speech protected by the First Amendment. Both were five to four with Justice Scalia in the majority. In a number of recent cases, Justice Scalia wrote dissenting opinions joined by Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan to expand privacy rights under the Fourth Amendment. It was Justice Scalia who led the court in expanding the rights of criminal defendants to confront their accusers under the Sixth Amendment. I can identify no areas where Neil Gorsuch has shown that he's likely to join with the Liberals. In fact, in the first votes since he's been on the court, he's consistently voted with the conservative wing. And so I think that the most important thing that's occurred since we were together last is there's now again a five-person conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Well, this then brings me to my fifth and final theme about the current court, and that's to look to the future. Did you know that since 1960, 78 years old is the average age which a Supreme Court justice has left the bench? As we're together today, there are three justices who are 78 or older. Ruth Bader Ginsburg turned 84 on March 15th of this year. Anthony Kennedy will turn 81 on July 23rd. Stephen Breyer will turn 79 on August 15th. I think that both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer will remain on the court to the end of the Trump presidency if their health and their stamina allow it. I know that many people point to Ruth Bader Ginsburg being frail in appearance. I first met her in 1986 when she was a judge on the United States Court of Appeals To the District of Columbia Circuit. She was very frail in appearance even then. (laughs) Also, I think that both, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer had given instructions to their clerks that if anything happens to them, they should just be propped on the bench and they should continue to vote for them. (laughs) Have you ever seen Weekend at Bernie's? But there are rumors that Anthony Kennedy might be considering retiring, perhaps as soon as this summer, perhaps a year from now. If any one of these three justices, Justice Kennedy or Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer, leaves the court between now and January 20th, 2021, then there will be a dramatic ideological transformation. Neil Gorsuch replacing Antonin Scalia largely restores the court's ideological balance to what it was before Justice Scalia's death. But President Trump replacing Justice Ginsburg or Justice Kennedy or Justice Breyer is a major shift in the court's ideology. I have no doubt, none whatsoever, that if any of these three just replaced by President Trump, there will be five votes to overrule Roe v. Wade. I have no doubt that there will be five votes to eliminate the exclusionary rule, criminal cases. I have no doubt that there will be five votes to eliminate all forms of affirmative action. And so the change that we've seen on the Supreme Court is undoubtedly significant, but a future change would really be transformative with regard to the United States Supreme Court. So I was asked to talk about 40 minutes about the current court, and what's before it in these cases. Um, let me then use our remaining 15 minutes, as always, for any questions you have. And as the rabbi said, glad to talk about these cases Other cases or other constitutional issues that might be in the news. And there's microphones so everybody can hear your question. And if there's no questions, I have more cases I can talk about. Go ahead. Some years ago when you spoke, uh, there was a question about some issue, I don't remember what it was, and I asked if you thought there was a correct answer, and your answer as I recall it was no, it depends what you think words like liberty and privacy mean, and there are honest differences of opinion between different people about what these words mean based on background, education, and so on. Are you still feeling honest differences of opinion? or something different happening in the court now? I still believe that the words in the Constitution, like liberty and equality, cruel and unusual punishment, are open to interpretation, and reasonable people can differ. Also, what's often forgotten is that there's no absolute rights under the Constitution. Constitutional law is always about balancing competing interests, and how we balance is based on our life experiences and our views. What's a compelling interest? There's no litmus test for that. What's an unreasonable search and seizure? There's no litmus test for that. So I think that there's great room for disagreement. There's always been. That's why it matters so much who's on the Supreme Court. And both Republicans and Democrats recognize it. The reason the Republicans kept Merrick Garland from being confirmed is they knew how much the seat matters on the Supreme Court. The reason the Democrats filibustered Neil Gorsuch is they know how much the seat matters on the Supreme Court. And that's why whether there's another vacancy in the next three and a half years is so crucial, not for the short-term, but the real long-term future of all of our rights. Thank you. Thanks again for coming here and doing that. My pleasure. Even before Justice Kennedy retires, isn't Neil Gorsuch uh, a fifth vote for the Alito agenda to cripple public sector unions? And is there a new yes. Friedrichs case being fast tracked up uh, to, yes. to do that? And isn't uh, overruling a Abood and enacting uh, right to work laws as a First Amendment based part of that agenda? And will that happen? Yes. Oh, now okay, I'll explain. Thanks. In 1977, in a case you referred to, Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, The Supreme Court reaffirmed that no one can be required to join a public employees union. But the court said that non-union members can be required to pay the share of the union dues that go to support the collective bargaining of the union. The court said non-union members benefit from collective bargaining. They benefit in their wages, their hours, their working conditions. They shouldn't be able to be free riders. But the court said non-union members don't have to pay the part of the union dues that go to support the political activities of the union. In a couple of recent cases, the five conservative justices then on the court sharply criticized Abood. They invited a case to overrule it. The case that you alluded to was Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, and it involves a woman here in Orange County, Rebecca Friedrichs, she's a middle school teacher at a public school, and she filed a lawsuit in the federal court, objecting to have to pay the share of the union dues that go to support collective bargaining case was filed in federal court in Santa Ana. Her lawyers asked the federal district court judge, Josephine Staten, to overrule the Supreme Court decision in a boot. She said, I'm a federal trial court judge. I can't overrule the Supreme Court. They said, that's right. Just rule against us so we can get to the higher court. It then went to the federal court of appeals, and they asked it to overrule the Supreme Court. They said, not even we, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, can overrule the Supreme Court. And the lawyers for Rebecca Friedrich said, that's right, just rule against it so we get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court granted review, and it's an unusual case. There's no record in the case. It was just a vehicle to overrule a vote. The case was argued on Monday, January 11th, 2016. I've never read a transcript of an oral argument that was so clear as to what the result was going to be. All of the five conservative just on the court were clear they were going to vote to overrule a vote. In terms of the reaction of the lawyers on both sides, I know the lawyers for the National Right to Work Committee thought this was a certain victory being snatched away from them. Lawyers for the unions breathed an enormous sigh of relief. If a boot is overruled, it's going to have a devastating effect here in California and over 20 other states in terms of union revenues, union membership, union political influence. Not surprisingly, after Justice Scalia's death, court announced it was split four to four. It was affirming the Ninth Circuit by an evenly divided court. But there's a case now coming from the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit that's likely to be on the court's docket next term. And I think there will be five votes to overrule a um, I have no doubt that Justice Gorsuch is going to vote together with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy Thomas Alito. And it will overrule a board. it will have a devastating effect on unions. And so what happened last year was just postponing this from occurring. Please. Oh, thank you. Uh, my question is uh, more generic, and it's a question over the age-old debate over bias on the court, and that is, we normally use these terms, liberal and conservative, and they, we refer to a political bias, but in fact, the age-old tension has been between the originalists and the modernists, so to speak, between the strict construction and otherwise. The question is, on this court, do you think the bias is more political, or is it more judicial philosophy that governs um, that, that bias? When we agree with the court, we think we got it, they got it right, and when we disagree with the court, we think they were biased. <laughs> when we deal, as I said in response to the first question, with things like, what does equal protection mean? What's cruel and unusual punishment? What's a compelling interest? What's unreasonable? so much comes down to the values of the individual justices. And it's not surprising that that tracks political party ideology. To answer your question directly, Justice Scalia said he was an originalist. He was going to follow the original understanding of the Constitution. And he found in the First Amendment no limit on government aid to parochial schools. He found in the Constitution no protections with regard to reproductive freedom like abortion rights. He found that affirmative action was unconstitutional. There was a remarkable similarity between the Republican party of today and what Justice Scalia thought was the original understanding of the framers. It's not that I think the Republicans are paralleling the framers. It's that his conclusions very much parallel his ideology. That's just as true for liberals. I just think they're less likely to pretend they're doing something different than that. Hello, Dean. I and thank was, you for bringing your students here yes. today. Yes. And so I was going to ask about uh, Friedrichs with my students. Sure. But, but I, didn't, I don't want to lose my place in line. So I will ask the following. What do you make of um, McConnell saying that Merrick Garland would make a good FBI director... How do you think Lieberman would fill the role? And what do you think of the special counsel that has been appointed and where all of that may lead? Okay. (laughs) I'm going to take it in reverse order. Whatever your politics, Democrat or Republican, there have been serious allegations in the last couple of weeks that President Trump that high-level campaign officials, that high-level officials who are in his administration have engaged in crimes. There's reason to believe that Michael Flynn didn't register as a foreign agent, didn't disclose money as he was supposed to. There's reason to believe that Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, lied before Congress under oath and saying he hadn't had contact with Russian officials. Um, President Trump has said specifically that he fired the FBI director in part because of the Russia investigation. He said that to Lester Holt from NBC Hmm. two weeks ago. He was quoted in the New York Times, having told the two people from the Russian embassy that he fired Comey because he's, quote, a nut job and take the pressure off with regard to Russia. Um, The very firing of Comey, if it was done for that reason, is obstruction of justice. All of this requires an independent investigation. After Watergate, Congress passed the Ethics in Government Act. It was in 1978. And it says if there's credible evidence that the president or high-level executive official violates the law, a three-judge court would appoint an independent counsel and that person could be removed from office only for just cause. I think we need such a statute. It expired in 1999 after the Clinton impeachment. And I think it's a mistake. Thankfully, last week they appointed Robert Mueller to be the special prosecutor. There's every reason to believe that he will be independent. He's not gonna conduct an investigation just to please those who appointed him. And so I applaud the appointment of Mueller. I think more generally that we still need a statute to assure the independence of the independent counsel. As to Merrick Garland, I think he would have made a terrific special prosecutor. On the other hand, he has life tenure and he's the chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. I don't think he would have left that position for a short term one of independent counsel. Um, and I have no opinion as to Joe Lieberman for that role. We have time for about one or two more questions. Okay. okay. I was a gynecologist. How about the three questions right there? Okay. I was a gynecologist before Roe v. Wade. I frequently had to deal with women who died because of botched abortions. After Roe v. Wade, I have not seen one woman, not one, who has had any major problems from abortion. Do you really believe the Supreme Court will eliminate uh, the present law and go back to where we were? I believe to a very high degree of certainty that if Justice Kennedy or Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer is replaced by President Trump, the Supreme Court will overrule Roe. I believe on the current court, John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch will be votes to do that. What will happen then is that about half the states, abortion will be illegal in all or almost all circumstances. Many of these states already have laws on the books that prohibit abortion. They'll immediately go into effect. Michigan, which we don't think of as one of those conservative states, has a law in the books that would prohibit all abortions, and the Michigan Supreme Court has ruled it will immediately go into effect if Roe v. Wade is overruled. In places like California, Illinois, New York, abortion will remain safe and legal. What will then be is that women with resources will be able to travel to the states where abortion is legal. Did you know that before Roe v. Wade, one fourth, or before New York, actually, before New York became the first state in this country to legalize abortion, one fourth of the abortions in England were performed on American women. It wasn't poor women who were traveling to England for abortions. Um, the effect of overturning Roe is going to mean that poor women and teenagers are going to again have to suffer the unsafe back alley abortions. Um, there's an immediate threat now. The Trump budget will eliminate all funding for Planned Parenthood for the next year. Hundreds of thousands of women receive basic health care, reproductive health care, contraceptive health care, apart from abortion, from Planned Parenthood. There's no mechanism to fill in that gap. It was Richard Nixon who signed the bill to begin federal funding for Planned Parenthood. This, this is not a legal question, but a personal Hope one. Hope it's not an illegal one. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, I guess not. Um, that's, that's what I get for arguing with a lawyer. But, um, and it may seem frivolous uh, in light mm-hmm. of some of the other comments, but I'm really very mm-hmm. serious about it. Sure. Uh, aside from your sheer brilliance and hard work, is there any memory technique that you could <laughs> share with us um, I mean, it, it would save me remembering my wife's birthday, anniversary date, et cetera, et cetera, because it is simply unbelievable thank you. That, uh, unless there's your, question is, so there. you. no, I, your question is so sweet, thank you. No, I'm sorry. Your question is so sweet, thank you. I used to memorize baseball statistics as a child. Um, and I think it's having developed that ability then. Um, the true story is the, I taught myself multiplication and division because I wanted to know how to do batting averages and earn running averages. And I didn't know they were called multiplication and division, but I wanted to know, you know, uh, I'd still trade it all to be shortstop for the Cubs for a year. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Sure. Do you, and, and just, It's so sweet. Do, do you happen to remember how many home runs Willie Mays hit in his career? 600 and something. You're right. Okay, we've got a final question. <laughs> uh, only women up here today. Um, Dean, my question is about gerrymandering. And sure. I, I'm not very knowledgeable about it, but it seems to me to be always biased towards the party that is in office. And I'm just wondering, is this state-controlled, Is this by state or is is it ruled by the Supreme Court? This is a great last question because it is a perfect transition to my talk for you doing this next year. Okay. Because there's going to be a case before the Supreme Court about gerrymandering, a next-terms docket. It's called Whitford versus Gill, and it's a case of huge significance. I alluded to partisan gerrymandering quickly. Everyone's familiar with it. It's where the political party that controls the legislature draws election districts to maximize sea seats for that party. And so when, before California had an independent district commission, the Democrats in the California legislature would draw legislative districts to favor the Democrats. It's where the Republican city council draws election districts to preserve the majority of the Republican city council. This goes back to the earliest days of the United States but computer programs have made it so much more successful than ever before. So, you have situations like in North Carolina, which is very closely balanced between Republicans and Democrats. The Republicans didn't get 51% of the votes overall for the state legislature. They then take office, and they redraw the districts, so they end up with 80% of the seats in the state legislature. Or Pennsylvania, which is a state that usually tilts Democratic, Well, one year the Republicans got the majority of the seats by just a little bit, and then they now have, I think it's nine out of 13 congressional districts. Partisan gerrymandering, I think, is a huge threat to the Democratic process. We all learned that it's supposed to be voters who choose the elected officials. Partisan gerrymandering means it's the elected officials who choose the voters. In a couple of cases a decade ago, Veith versus Jubileer in 2004 and Lulac versus Perry in 2006, the Supreme Court said it wasn't going to touch partisan gerrymandering. It said, we don't have any way of knowing when it's unconstitutional. In November of 2016, a three judge court in Wisconsin, in a case called Whitford versus Gill, found the partisan gerrymandering there to be unconstitutional and said, we have an easy formula. Compare the percentage of votes that that political party gets with the number of seats that ends up in the legislature. And if there's a great disparity, that should be unconstitutional. The Supreme Court is obligated to take and decide this case because it comes from a three-judge court. So it'll be on the docket next term. And I cannot think of anything that's more important for our democratic process than what the Supreme Court does with regard to this case. So, If you invite me back next year and you come, I'll talk about it then. Thank Thank you so much.